When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an upgrade to the Secretary of State website is making it easier for voters to find out their status. Governor Phil Bryant shares his support. Therefore, I, Phil Bryant, Governor of the State of Mississippi, do hereby proclaim the month of September 2017 as Voter Registration Month. As low-wage workers push for an increase in the minimum wage, some say it's not a good choice for Mississippians. And in our book club segment, author Stephen Hinshaw shares a personal story on the stigma of mental illness. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State officials are encouraging all eligible Mississippi voters to get registered where they currently reside. During a press conference Wednesday, Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman unveiled a new tool on the Y'all Vote website. The website serves as Mississippi's online voter information center. It's now, it now allows citizens to verify their registration status and voting location more quickly by going online. The move answers two of voters' most frequently asked questions ahead of each election day. Voters who are already registered but have recently moved to another location within the state can use the new feature to update their address and receive information about their new polling place. Registered voters who have moved out of state can also cancel their registration on Y'all Vote. Governor Phil Bryant supports the effort. He says nearly 2.3 million Mississippians are eligible to be registered voters. When I was a very young child, people put their lives at risk registering to vote. Lives were taken. Intimidation stopped people from registering to vote. Simply trying to register people to vote in the state of Mississippi could cost you your life. The Secretary of State has done something I believe is remarkable. He he has used this new technology that we have, this this new y'all vote process to allow people to even determine if they are registered to vote. Now, when you move from one location to the next, I know oftentimes people think, oh, I was registered to vote, so I still am, and if I have to, I'll go back to the old area to vote. That's not what you should do. You should be voting in the precinct, in the area in which you are domiciled. 
this Secretary of State has done a remarkable job in reaching out to people who need to register to vote so they can exercise, I think, one of the most important freedoms that we have in the United States and vote. There is nothing that we work harder at. There is nothing that is more important. There is nothing that more have sacrificed for than the simple but profound right to vote in this country. The new Are You Registered to Vote tool requires a user to enter their information to find their status in the statewide elections management system. The September launch coincides with National Voter Registration Month. Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman tells MPB's Ezra Wall the new tool is easy. The new part is being able to tell whether you're registered to vote very easily and securely and then making sure people go register to vote. That's number one. And second, we believe there are tens of thousands of Mississippians that move their addresses, as we gave the example of the governor, move from Rankin to Hines County. Those people need and I think are obligated to go change their address on our system or at the circuit clerk's office. We made it where you can sit in your kitchen table at home at night now and fill in your change of address. And when you go to your polling place, we'll even tell you where to go vote. You go, your, your name will be on, on the ballot list there, and you can cast your ballot free and clear. Otherwise, you may cast an affidavit ballot that may never be counted. So we want your registered vote. We also want your vote to count. Now, in, in our newsroom, I know we get these questions, and I know your office must too. But is this in response to Election Day questions that you're getting from people? Yes, we, we structured this based on our phone calls in. Uh, we get several hundred on Election Day here. Our staff does a great job, and we keep a log of what people ask. And, and the biggest question was, am I registered to vote, and where do I go vote? And so uh, we've made that easy for everybody. Now it's online. The legislature did a great job. What steps have you taken to make sure that the process of people putting their information online is a secure one through uh, sos.ms.gov? Yeah, what we've done is uh, we have several security features on changing your address here, and then the circuit clerks will have their eyes on, on it as well. Then it goes to our statewide election management system. Our statewide election management system is one of the few that's encrypted now. So we not only have we put out protocols with everybody that can get into the system, but we have encrypted it and we have backups and we have firewalls and all kinds of different things. We actually got a note from the Homeland Security that our, our system was one of the tops in the country. And then they asked me this morning to be on the Homeland Security Advisory Council. We've talked over the years about online voter registration for first-time voters and, and people registering for the first time in Mississippi. Uh, what are your concerns uh, with that, and do you think we'll ever see that in the coming years? Oh, I, I guess you probably will. And, and if, you know, one of the things that's great about our country is we have a constitution, and the constitution says the states control the method for casting ballots. And the Supreme Court's been very conscious of that, I think, unless it, uh, it violates some other constitutional law. Like in Washington, they mail in all their ballots. You know, and there's different ones that do different things. Ohio has same-day registration. Every, every state is different, and we're pleased to be a little different in Mississippi for what has worked for us. I don't see us changing that right away. I don't see the security being sufficient. I, I just have concerns that I expressed today to the others that we shouldn't go to uh, registration online. I think it's, we're just not ready yet. And every time I see something... Uh, like the CIA gets hacked or uh, uh, Secretary Clinton gets hacked or <laughs> Democrat Party, whomever, uh, you know that, that we're just not right, re ready yet. 
The governor declared this uh, September 2017 to be voter registration month. So mm -hmm. I know today wasn't about first-time voter registration, but if somebody has not ever registered to vote, mm -hmm. how can you do that? Well, first thing is you go and see are you registered to vote. And then a lot of, I'm, I'm serious, we get hundreds of these calls on our registered vote people have gotten or maybe hadn't cast a ballot in several years. If you're not, then you're able to register to vote by mail. There's a form that's on our website, or you can go by the circuit clerk's office. We have 92 in Mississippi, and you register to vote right there. Secretary Delbert Hoseman, thank you very much. It's good to see you. I'm good to have you here today. The Secretary of State's office says about 1.8 million people are registered to vote in Mississippi. The Y'all Vote site launched in September 2016. Coming up, who would benefit from an increase in the minimum wage? Mississippians weigh in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The fight for a higher minimum wage continues as some Mississippians have joined a national movement to raise the minimum wage. Supporters of the fight for $15 movement protested across the nation Monday in different cities. Here in Jackson, a group held a rally outside the McDonald's on Hanging Moss Road. Organizers say some fast food employees have gone on strike in more than 300 cities around the country demanding a pay increase. According to a report from the National Employment Law project, more than 40% of Mississippians could benefit from a minimum wage increase. Joshua Dedman works with the Community Partners for the Fight for 15 Mid-South Organizing Committee. He tells MPB's Kendra Wright they'd like to see higher wages and union rights. The Fight for 15 is a national campaign for low-wage workers to receive a fair and living wage um, focused on workers who work for minimum wage in fast food corporations, not limited to fast food workers, but focusing on um, large fast food chains who make billions of dollars in profit, who can pay workers more than um, the federally regulated minimum wage. How long has it been in place in Mississippi, or how long has there been a Mississippi chapter? There has been work on a Mississippi organizing committee, um, primarily focused here in Jackson, but not limited to Jackson, since 2014. There have been other efforts to organize workers, um, specifically in Greenville, Mississippi, um, and some other parts of Mississippi. But seeing that Jackson is the largest city, the efforts have been focused on and the actions have been focused here in Jackson. So you mentioned fast food restaurants, but are there other careers represented where the workers earn less than $15? Yes. There's been an effort to organize gas station workers, workers who work in in dollar stores, workers who also work in airlines, who work for um, airports and things like that. So there have been numerous um, low-wage worker struggles that the Fight for 15 is um, aimed at trying to focus on a fair and living wage, but also the power of having a union and a collective bargaining agreement for these workers. So tell me about the demonstration on Labor Day. Why were people organized? The Labor Day Solidarity Action was a group of community supporters who are in different 
social justice avenues and also just concerned community members who want the workers to realize that there is a national struggle for a fair and living wage and that there is a national struggle for fast food workers to have a collective bargaining agreement and for these workers to build their own power and capacity and that there are people in Jackson and around Jackson who support that effort. Uh, You mentioned maybe people who don't necessarily earn minimum wage or less than $15. Why should people who earn more than $15 care? What is a struggle for the least is a struggle for all. And if workers who are making minimum wage receive more, that will stimulate the economy in a way that would have a positive trend. And workers all around will be able to earn more, have better paying jobs, an opportunity to have more power in their workplace. And so that trend, starting with low-wage workers, would bleed into um, the entire community. So these people from across the community who support workers' rights wanted to get out with these workers and let them know that they support them, that they support the efforts, that we don't want exploitive labor in our communities. We want workers to be happy. We want workers to have enough means to meet their needs. What challenges do minimum wage earners face? And you've talked about them having a voice within their organization, but what do they face by just not making enough money? Workers have to choose whether to pay their cell phone bill or their rent. And if I have a job, there should be no reason that I work in in one of the most wealthiest nations in the world, and I don't have enough to pay my rent. I have to choose how I must pay my bills, that I don't have adequate health care for my family. Those are issues that workers face every day, and that the fact that they're seeing and other workers' struggles mean to address. Joshua Dedman is Community Partners Organizer for the Mid-South Organizing Committee in the Fight for 15. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you. Congressional Democrats have proposed legislation to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 by 2024 in the Raise the Wage Act of 2017. They say 21 states are still stuck at the federal minimum of 725. Jameson Taylor is vice president for policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells us the move would set a low bar for workers. Raising the minimum wage is a horrible idea. First, it sets a low bar for workers. It sends a message that earning minimum wage is the best thing that many low-income workers can do. Second, it's a short-sighted idea. It's going to hurt low-income workers. It's going to help large companies the most, and it's going to trap people in welfare. A full-time worker who makes minimum wage in Mississippi, 725, is making $14,500. So if that's the best job they can get, and it's at poverty level, how is that a bad thing not to raise the minimum wage? Well, one, it's not the best job that they can get. We're seeing companies relocate to Mississippi, and one reason that they're doing that is because Mississippi has the advantage of low labor costs. And so we have companies that are coming here that are offering workers good jobs. But what we're seeing in, for instance, Seattle, which raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour, 
we're seeing that there is a reduction in working hours for low-wage earners. For, for instance, in the restaurant business, in the warehouse business, we're seeing also companies like Amazon, McDonald's, Applebee's. As you raise the minimum wage, what they're doing is they're eliminating those jobs. They're automating those jobs. There are other studies that suggest, particularly in Seattle, that raising the minimum wage actually helps the economy because people are making more money to spend. Therefore, it's stimulating the economy to have businesses expand. So that's the yin and yang of this argument here. There are going to be winners and losers from raising the minimum wage. The winners, as I mentioned, are going to be the larger companies that can absorb higher labor costs. They're going to put their competitors out of business. And so in Seattle, for instance, we have seen a number of restaurants that were on the margin. They went out of business. The flip side is you're seeing higher prices. For instance, if you go to a restaurant in Seattle, you're going to see that your prices are higher than they were from a couple years ago. You're also going to see new fees that have been tacked on by restaurant owners because they simply can't absorb those high wages. If you look at Mississippi, we have a different economy than does Seattle, and so we're going to be less able to absorb those increased labor costs. And speaking of restaurants, for servers and those who earn a portion of their wages through tips, that increase has not happened in 25 years. It's still $2.13. Again, I think there are many people that work in the restaurant business, and many of them actually make a pretty decent salary. One thing that we need to look at is what's called the success sequence. The success sequence is that if you graduate from high school at least, you get a job, you get married, you have children, you do things in that order, and you will be prosperous. Literally 97% of people who follow the success sequence are prosperous. And so in talking about the minimum wage, we're just talking about an ineffective policy that is not going to lift people out of poverty. We need to look at the entire picture as to why people are in poverty, why, for instance, wages in some fields are stagnant. We also have something that we need to look at, which is called the welfare cliff. Imagine you're a single mom, you're earning $12 an hour, you get an increase in your wages, get a promotion, you're going to make 50 cents more an hour. If you take that 50 cents more an hour, you're going to lose your Obamacare, you're going to lose housing assistance, you're going to lose child care assistance, you're going to lose thousands of dollars of welfare. Suddenly that promotion doesn't look very good, and in that case, welfare has become a trap. So I think we need to look at other things that are trapping people in poverty, for instance, single parenthood, systemic things that are much more important to address than raising the minimum wage. The recommendation is to raise the wage to $15. You're going to have a lot of workers that are not going to take that deal because they will lose the welfare programs that they are on. And I want to go back to the woman because you said if she works hard, she can get a better job and do better. But if the minimum wage was raised, that would double her salary. It's not 50 cents more. It's doubling her salary. How hard does she have to work to make more than $15 an hour? Let's say if you take a mom who's, I believe, the example they use, they're making $12.50 an hour. For that woman to make the calculation to decide, okay, I'm going to get off of all the welfare programs that I am currently eligible for, her wages would have to increase to $30.50 an hour. At best, the minimum wage is a Band-Aid, and it's an ineffective Band-Aid that has very high costs. All right, we'll leave it at that. Jameson Taylor is the Vice President for Policy at Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Jameson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Karen. Pardon me. (laughs) Excuse me. 
It has been eight years since the last increase in the federal minimum wage. Coming up, the stigma of mental illness and how one man saw its effects from one family member impact his entire family. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Author Stephen Hinshaw is a professor of psychology and psychiatry with an international presence in the mental health community. He's written over 320 articles and chapters and 12 books, yet it is his newest book, Another Kind of Madness, that tells the story of how it all began. He chronicles his father's recurring mental illness and the doctor-enforced silence surrounding it, plus the huge need to combat stigma. After years of experiencing the ups and downs of his father's illness without knowing it existed, Hinshaw's father revealed the truth that would change his life forever. He tells us his family narrative led to his career and diagnosing his father with bipolar disorder. This idyllic childhood I had, my little sister and I, Columbus, Ohio. Dad was a professor of philosophy at Ohio State. We had 50-yard line seats for OSU football games. Mom taught English over at Ohio State. What could have been better, except that Dad would vanish as though into thin air, no warning, nothing said. We had to pretend everything was the same when he was gone, which would be three months or six months or at one point even a year, a full year. No postcards, no phone calls. What I didn't know is that his lead doctor had told him explicitly, if your children ever know the reason for your disappearances, a serious mental illness, you're going off to mental hospitals, They'll be permanently destroyed. So you and your wife are forbidden from ever mentioning it. Here was this great childhood, and Dad would be gone for months or half a year, a year at a time. I don't know if he's alive or dead. It must be worse than anything I could have imagined. And I blame myself. Well, maybe if I'd been a better boy, he wouldn't have left. Let yes. me ask, because you say he might, he might have been gone for a year at a time. Yes. Where were you told he was? I got brave once during my third grade year, and Dad had been gone a couple of months. Now, I was used to this by now, and Mom might vaguely say that Dad was on a trip somewhere, but I thought, well, this is too long a trip, and I got brave one afternoon, walked down to the kitchen table and said, Mom, where's Dad? And she looked me in the eye and said, Steve, your father is resting in California. It's best if you ask no more questions. And I knew from the look in her eye that I couldn't ask anything more. So I thought, well, Dad reads all these books. He teaches philosophy. Maybe he needs a lot of rest. It wasn't until I was 18, back in Ohio for my first spring break from college, that Dad sat me down in the study and said, son, perhaps you should learn some events of my life. And I learned about his many episodes of the great achievements he had, but also time in mental hospitals he had been given up for dead. Now I finally knew what had been underlying all this silence, and it was a revelation to me. I decided to go into psychology and become a clinical psychologist. Before we get to the stigma of mental illness, did he voluntarily go to the mental hospital, and what happened to him when he was there? He did not voluntarily go. Dad had a very severe form of bipolar disorder, which I, in fact, diagnosed just after college. Doctors had thought he had schizophrenia. 
He studied in grad school with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein at Princeton, learning about philosophy and physics. Yet not long after some of his greatest accomplishments, he would get delusional beliefs and not sleep, and he was forced into mental hospitals. Now, back in those days, all it took was a paragraph from a psychiatrist and a judge's signature, and you were involuntarily placed in a mental hospital until the doctors thought you were better. Dad was really forcibly taken to mental hospitals. How he and my mother kept these episodes really silent for my sister and me was superhuman, but this is what the doctors had ordered. Stigma and silence were the doctor's orders of the day because it might destroy the children. Where does this country stand? Is it better than it was? How do we address it? First of all, the good news is, compared to the silent 1950s when I was a very little boy, the American public knows a lot more about mental illness. There's psychology courses in high schools. There's a lot more media presence. The facts are better known, what schizophrenia or depression or bipolar illness or PTSD or autism are all about. However, at the same time, attitudes haven't budged since 1955. And in fact, three times more citizens today if you mention the term mental illness, believe that it's directly linked to violence and, and danger. The public face of mental illness all too often is these photographs of school shooters, deranged-looking young male individuals. What's less known is that people with serious mental illness are much more likely to be victimized by crime than to perpetrate it. So another way the public sees mental health issues is homeless people walking the streets. I think we need to bring this to national attention. We need to enforce parity same coverage for mental health as physical health, media images, everyday stories need to be told, and it's all about humanization. If we talked about and open up about how frequently mental illness affects families, then it would be on the national agenda. So I think it's going to take multiple fronts, policy and media and telling stories, but I have hope that, especially with young people, this is the good side of social media, and young people are open. I think we can turn the dial, move the dial, and get more open about mental health. Thanks for listening today. Join us tomorrow at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.com. 